Good morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53. Our passage this morning is John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Now, out of all of the passages in the Gospel of John, when I was getting prepared early, uh, several months ago, thinking through that we were going to be going through the Gospel of John, there was one passage that had me more worried and more apprehensive than any other passage in the Bible. Well, at least in the Gospel of John. And this is that passage. Now, we haven't heard it already in our service, um, and so some of you might already be flipping it back and like, okay, what, what exactly is happening? And community group on Friday, I told uh, the community group that I was pretty apprehensive about this message, and I saw like five people pulling out their cell phones to be like, okay, what, what exactly, what topic is coming up in this message? This passage requires a lot of difficult work, and hard decisions, and no matter what decision you make, there are dangers associated with it. On top of that, even after you've made those decisions, these are some of the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible. These verses are often used to undermine the authenticity and authority of Scripture, these verses have been used to restrict and prevent Christians from, from fulfilling their God-given responsibilities and roles. Then to make it worse, when people actually do look at these verses, they spend most of their time discussing what we are not told instead of what the passage actually says. So with all that said, we're going to skip it and move on to the then. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we could have. We could have skipped it, but I think it's more important to deal with the issues of this passage. Now, my goal this morning is to clear up some of the confusion, the, some of the misunderstandings, some of the hang-ups with this passage. Beyond that, I want to confront some of the lies and distortions people you have used this passage to support. And finally, I want us to be encouraged by the truth that is shared in this passage. So, with that being said, what we're going to be doing today, the structure, is we're going to kind of start, go through this passage, and we're going to address some questions that come up with this passage. If you have your handout, the first question is probably not a question you would expect a pastor to address on a Sunday morning. Here's the question. Is this passage Scripture? Is this passage in the Bible? Now, if you actually have your hard copy of the Bible, or if you are on your cell phone and, and you're looking, most of your translations are going to do something unique with this passage. Maybe there's a double bracket around it, and it's all in italics. Maybe it's, there's an asterisk, and it's in the footnotes. But for whatever it is, all of the modern translations do something to point out that there's something different about this passage. The, what my Bible says is the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Why is this first question so important? And we're going to spend some time. This is not the type of thing we do every week, 
But we're going to spend some more time with this question. Why is it so important for us to answer a question, is this scripture? Because that's our foundation. We are a church built on Christ and his word. Every week, what we gather around is the truth found in scripture. That is how we determine what we are doing. That's how we find truth. It's all from scripture. So when we ask this question, when we come to something, we need to know, is our foundation secure? Now, one of the things I said is that this passage is often misused and misunderstood. One of the ways that this passage is misused is to cause people to question, is your Bible true and trustworthy? Can you trust the Bible? There's many arguments of, well, you know, the Bible is so old and it's, and it's, been, it's been so long and, and you have no way of knowing that what you hold is truly the word of God. I mean, look at this passage. Look, it says even in your own Bible, it says that you can't trust it. This is an incredibly important thing for us to do. That we need to know that our Bible is trustworthy. And we also need to know how to respond when people tell you, you can't use the Bible to prove anything. It's not a trustworthy document. So we're going to take a little bit of time to address those issues. I don't want to spend a ton of time. It's a study that we could spend the next year plus just talking about that. And if you have more questions, Dr. Lytle and Ted Boykin are here. You can talk to them about it. <laughs> no, but if you have more questions and you want to discuss this more, I'd be happy. I'd welcome um, that discussion. But we need to think about this. Let's first just talk about the process of scripture. And we are going to get into our passage, but if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. This is what it says. For we did not follow, this is Peter talking, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What is Peter talking about right there in that passage? The Mount of Transfiguration where he saw the glory of Christ revealed. And he says, look, we're not making this stuff up. We saw it. We were eyewitnesses to it. We're not making myths up. This really happened. But look how he continues in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Understand what, what Peter is saying here. He is saying, first, that Scripture is written not from men who produced it by their own will, but men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But look at Peter's 
confidence. We have this word more fully confirmed. What word? The prophetic word that he's already talked about. Who is Jesus? So now think about this. He has his own eyewitness account on this side, and then he has the scripture, the prophecies, and which one is Peter saying has more value to him? The scripture. We have this even more fully confirmed than what I saw with my own eyes. Someone who was used by God to give us the scriptures He says, look, I have this great thing that I have my confidence on because I got to see this. But my foundation is even stronger than my eyewitness account. My foundation is that this truly is the word of God. That gives us confidence. We're not just talking about some book. We're talking about something that God breathed out. It is inerrant, infallible. It is perfect. It is whole. So we have these men who wrote the word of God, and then what would happen after that? It would be copied because it was valuable, and then copied and copied and copied and taken out. We have Paul talking about this. He would send out letters, and he would say, share these, these words with other churches. Man writes down the word of God as they are carried along by the Spirit, and then people shared that scripture with others, and they kept on doing it. Now, at that point, that's the part where people start having an issue and they say, well, but they're people. And people are going to make mistakes. And that's true. People do make mistakes. But this is still the word of God, that God keeps his word. People didn't just look at this and say, well, you know, it's like a homework assignment and you just kind of have to do it and like go copy these words and it's not. No, they were very intentional because they knew the value of the word of God. They wanted to get it right. If you ever look through the whole process of what the Jewish people did in order to make sure that every time that they copied a text, copied the word of God, that it was the same as the original, it's incredible. Now this process, though, as we are thousands for portions of the Bible, thousands of years removed, at least a thousand for all the portions of of Scripture, this process of copying has there been certain issues where there are certain things that don't match up identically? Yeah. There are things where people say, oh, but there's all of these differences. There's all of these numbers. Here's, this is then what gets into the, the science called textual criticism. Again, we're not going to spend much time here. But textual criticism is not a Christian science. Meaning the only people that have to do this are Christians. No, this is a science across the world. There are no original ancient documents. All of them are copies of copies. But the Bible is completely different in one that we have more. You could take all the other ones and combine it. We have so many more. Most copies, there's like 10, 15, 20 of original things. Things that were even written after Scripture. The Bible has over 5,800 manuscripts. Now, are there differences between some of those manuscripts? Sure. But 99% of those are like the difference between the spelling of one word or another. Sometimes it's the difference between how you put words in order. In English, it really matters the order. If I say, um, Stephen hit John, okay, that's one way. But if I switch it and say, John hit Stephen, it's totally different. 
That's not the case in Greek. In Greek, you can flip things in any order, and it will still have, because of the way that prefixes and suffixes are used, and so most of the changes are maybe a spelling thing, maybe just switching the, the order, but here's the confidence. Even if you took all 5,800 different manuscripts and you compiled them into one document and you read all of them, you would get the exact same message that you have in your hands right now. All of the truth of Scripture, the reality of pointing to Christ as our salvation, all of that is there. We can have confidence that we can look at all of these because it's not like they just found all 5,800 stored in one place. These are 5,800 that are spread out by centuries, by thousands and thousands of miles. They are spread out all over the place and they all have the exact same message. Our hope is only in Christ. So you can have confidence in your Bible. But what do we do when we come to a harder passage like this one, where it's a large portion that says, hey, this isn't in the oldest manuscripts? Well, that is an important question. Now, here's again some things I want to tell you. This is not a common thing. People want to use arguments like this and say, oh, Look, look, just look at John 7. I mean, yeah, right there, big issue. That's all over the place. It's not. There are two places that it does that. Because I don't want you to be distracted and thinking the whole time about the other one. The other one's at the end of Mark, okay? But we're not in Mark, so stay with me in John. Two places. And it's not like Christians are hiding that. And we're saying, oh, shh, don't tell anyone. We've got some mistakes, but like hide them away so no one knows it. No, we put it right in our text. Why? Because we want to have confidence in the word of God. So if there's a question, we say, look, we're not sure. Here's the other part, though, that we can have confidence with John 7. Nothing in in our passage is new. There's no doctrine here that we're basing this whole new belief on John 7, 53 through 8, 11. All of it we can confirm with other scripture. But I asked the question at the beginning, is this passage scripture? And I'm going to answer that according to my understanding, okay, and, and based off of the study that I've done, fully realizing that there are many people who disagree with very good reasons. My understanding is that it is not. The reason is, and I'll explain those briefly, One, it does say that the oldest manuscripts don't have those. So we have different times, and there's ways of dating the manuscripts. And when we get to this passage, it goes from 752 straight to 812. The second reason is because none of the early church fathers offer any commentary on these verses. They talk about the chapter 7 up to uh, verse 52, and then they jump right over to 812, and they don't address these verses. I had a third reason. That's somewhere in here. What? Doesn't sound like John. That is one of the reasons, because he uses a different word, that he uses the word scribes and Pharisees, which all the other Gospels use the word scribes, but he doesn't use that element. So, the, uh, now, oh, and then the, the, here's my fourth reason now. It's not consistent in where it shows up. So in the manuscripts that do have it, There's four different places that they put it in the Gospel of John. So sometimes it's after verse 44 in chapter 7. Sometimes it's at the end of of John. Sometimes it's here. So there's four different places that they put it in John. And one manuscript actually has it in Luke. So it's not consistent. Now, all of those are reasons where I don't think that this is Scripture. 
So that leads us to our next question. Should we preach it? If I think it's not scripture, what am I doing this morning? Are we done now? Like we can be dismissed? No, I know some of you got excited, but no. I am going to preach it. Why? Well, first, it's because it is consistent with the rest of scripture. It reflects truth. Nothing we are going to see today contradicts anything in scripture. Second, it's a helpful passage. Not a helpful passage in the sense that there's new information, that we discover new things about God. No, it's helpful because it reminds us about things we already know. Third, and this is the bi- a big one, it is culturally known and yet widely misunderstood. This passage is used to say things that even if you do think that this is in Scripture— or don't. It's used to say things that are not consistent with the rest of Scripture, and they misuse it, and so I'm going to address some of those things. The fourth reason is because I think it's true. Now, wait a second. You're like, well, wait. You just said you don't think it's Scripture. Yeah, I don't think it's Scripture. I still think it's true. I think that this really happened. At the end of John, in John 21, verse 25, it's, uh, John says this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I think this is one of those stories. One of the things that really happened, that the early church, and this is the other thing, the church has kept this for centuries. Now, the final reason is, I could be wrong. The fact is, a large portion of church history saw this as being in Scripture. I have my dad and brother think that this is Scripture. There are many. Many of you might think that as well. And so we are going to address it, but again, in confidence, knowing that nothing that we are establishing on this text cannot also be established by other texts in the Bible. So with all of that being said, a quite a long introduction, let's get into the passage. Again, we are going to be to remove some of the misunderstandings that distract us with this text and replace them with truth that encourages. Here's the big idea. Christ graciously offers freedom from condemnation because he fulfilled the law's demands. Christ graciously offers freedom from condemnation because he fulfilled the law's demand. Let's look at the first uh, verses, starting in verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So we see right now just the setting that this is happening near Jerusalem. Uh, First, we have the Mount of Olives. In the other Gospels, we are told that that was Jesus' habit, that he would sleep at the Mount of Olives, and then he would go back and he would teach in Jerusalem. And that's what we're seeing here, that he went to the Mount of Olives, and then early in the morning, he went again to the temple. The action that's happening is that Jesus is teaching the people. Now, John has presented this as the blessing that we have in Christ, that the light has come into the world. God with us, the Word took on flesh. This is one of the things that we celebrate about about Christmas, is that the God of the universe came down and taught to us. He revealed himself to us, and that's what Christ is doing. But there's a problem. As John has already shown us multiple times, does the world, the world receive the light? Do they receive their king? See, not everyone is thrilled that the light has come. 
The Pharisees specifically in John, we've already seen these different times where they've butt heads against Jesus, where they've gone against him. The first time when Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath and in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, it says, and this is why they were seeking to kill him. Because he healed on the Sabbath, but also because he claimed to be one with God. Last chapter, in chapter 7, we saw at the end the Pharisees looking at all these people and saying, oh, this crowd that does not know, these people that do not know the law of God, they are accursed. They look at all these people that, and see what they're doing and following Jesus, and they're completely against it. The Pharisees encompass those, the darkness that does not come into the light. So look at verse 3 through 6, the first part of verse 6. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, throughout this week, I've talked to different people about this passage, and I believe every single time I've had a conversation, there's been one question that has always come up. Why is only the woman being judged? Now, it's a logical question. How many people do you need to commit the adultery that leads to stoning? More than one. Who's here? Just one. We look at this and we're like, ah, oh, this isn't right. This isn't justice. Now, part of the answer to this question, why is only the woman being judged, part of the answer to that question is a very simple, I don't know. I don't know all of the circumstances that led to the Pharisees bringing the woman, but I do think the text gives enough clues for us to see that something's not right about this whole situation. Something is fishy. There's something else going on behind the scenes. Look what it says. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. That means what you think it means. Okay? They caught her in the act. Now, some people argue that the reason there's only one is because it was a false witness. And if they bring only one woman, it's one against many. If they brought two, then it's two against many. And so they, they, it's false witness, which we've seen the Pharisees are willing to do. When it comes to Jesus' trial for his crucifixion, they were seeking false witness. I don't think that's what's happening here. The reason I think that this is a true witness against the woman, first, is because Jesus does not treat her as innocent. Jesus doesn't say, no, don't stone her. You guys lied and made that up. She's innocent. That's not what Jesus says. In fact, even when, when they're all gone, Jesus doesn't ask, hey, was it true? No, Jesus says, go now and sin no more. But let's think about this. We're going to go into, our next question is going to be talking about what the Pharisees and scribes are hoping to accomplish. But we can see in verse 6, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. What is the real concern for the Pharisees here? Is it justice? Is it following the law with this woman? No, what they're really trying to do is something against Jesus. 
one of the things that we see with the Pharisees regularly is that they ends justify the means. Hey, we will pay Judas this money, blood money, but then if Judas comes, and, and we will get false witness to murder Jesus because that is the right end for our nation. That is what needs to be done. And yet then when Judas comes back and says, no, I can't do this, like, we can't take blood money. What are, you, are you crazy? We can't do that. This inconsistency. Now, I don't know if this is the case, okay? So let me, let me be clear about that. But if their main goal is to catch Jesus, they're going to be very intentional. This is not the first time that they've tried to test Jesus and they have been embarrassed. So they're going to come with an airtight case. We know. We have witnesses. We know that's what's needed to condemn a woman. So we're going to bring airtight witnesses against this woman. Because their main goal is not the woman, it's Jesus. And if, if, you know, if someone has to die in order to get Jesus, that's okay. How do you catch someone as a sure thing in adultery, though? Most people are not looking to broadcast adultery, especially if the punishment is stoning. There's a good chance that these men set this woman up. And set it up, and they even told the guy, listen, we'll let you go, but we need some real proof. But here's the real principle that I want us to see, because we have a problem with this, this, what's going on here. Here's the principle. Human judgment is often prejudiced and flawed, but God's judgment is always righteous and pure. They're not following the law. The law says, it's very clear, that the man and the woman need to be stoned. It's very clear on that. But the human judgment is often flawed, but God's judgment is always perfect. Here's the issue, though, with us when we're talking about this. This is where people use texts like this against us. See, look, all these religious people, they, they're prejudiced. They're against women. And you know what's the tragic, tragic thing? Is that our history is often like that. We look back at, our, at church history, we've made decisions like this where we have looked and bent the law the way that we want to, and that causes people to question God's law because we equate human judgment with God's judgment, and we say, I am doing this in the name of God. In American history, slavery was said that this is justified according to Scripture. In our history, again, women are not in the image of God. They are less than. And we've said that according to God's judgment. We said this is what God says. But human judgment is often flawed, but God's judgment is always perfect. So as we move forward, we're going to talk about whether sinners can judge other sinners, whether sinners can, can point out other sin. Don't do it as a human. Do it according to what God says. Don't mix and match. Don't do things for your own convenience. But what, do the, what is the scribes and Pharisees' goal? Their goal is to fix the Jesus problem. Throughout all of the Gospels, we see this battle between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. The battle has been about the content of his message, what he's been telling people, that he is God, that he is their salvation. Their issue has been with the popularity of his message, that more people are following him. How many times that, it, that you see the Pharisees, once they see the numbers that are following Jesus, that it bothers them. 
It's the implication of his message. The implication of his message is that they are evil and sinners and need him. None of those are things that they're willing to agree to. And so they're going after him. That's why in chapter 5 it says that they want to kill him. So what do they do? Look at their intentional plan. Often in our Christian circles, uh, the, the butt of the joke is the Pharisees and scribes. And we want to make fun of them. These were intelligent people. They're not dummies. They are compared to Christ. And that's what makes it easy for us to do that at times. But the reality is they come up with a really good plan. They bring this moment. Look, look what it says. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Why do they do that? Why not wait to talk to Jesus privately regarding the matter? First thing we need to realize is that they don't care about the woman. What they're trying to do is get Jesus. And they know that everyone is looking at Jesus and they're awed by his teaching. That's what chapter 7 said. That people are choosing to believe in him. And so what they're going to do is they're going to make Jesus do a decision that either way, whatever he says, it's going to put him in a bad light. Look at how they present the case. They give a fact on the first one. The fact that they say, um, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. They give a second fact. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. And then they give the question. So what do you say? Everything here is set up perfectly. Are they asking Jesus because they're unsure of what to do? Do they value Jesus' opinion? Do they need help with the issue? No. They want to have a charge against him. So what are they hoping to accomplish? First, they're hoping to accomplish, they want to destroy Christ's credibility. He can either be compassionate by rebelling against God's law, or he can undermine his message of life and grace and forgiveness by condemning this woman to death. The people are looking at Jesus and loving his message. But now they put Jesus in a place where, like, either you have to say you're against the law of Moses and for the things that you're preaching, but then that's going to be an issue with the crowd, or you can say, I'm for life and forget All of these things, they're putting this issue before him of completely destroying his credibility. But not only will they undermine his credibility, their plan is to remove Jesus. It says that they might bring a charge against him. Well, what if he had said, stone her? Would they still have a charge? Yeah. They've set this up really well. Because on one side, the charge is, if he says, don't stone her, okay, do not stone her, then what is he, is he going against? The law of Moses. Now he's condemned to the Jewish people. But what if he says, stone her? Do the Jewish people have the right to put people to death? No. Then he's against Rome. Either way, Jesus is trapped. And the Jews know this, okay? This isn't a surprise. In John 18, verse 29, um, Pilate, this is talking about Pilate. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They're asking Jesus to judge according to Moses' law, knowing that if he says, put her to death, he's then breaking the Roman law. You see how intelligent their trap is? 
that they are going to get Jesus. Here's the principle. There is no limit to how far darkness will run in order to avoid the light. There is no limit to how far darkness will run in order to avoid the light. You see everything they're doing. You see what they're going to do with the crucifixion. They want to condemn him. This is what John 3 says. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now, something that, that even when uh, Mike talked about before, this has an evangelism principle for us. See, we can think that we need to force people into the light. And that it is our job to make someone accept the gospel. You can't. Christ didn't. Our job is to present the light, is to make the gospel known. But you can't force people. You should expect that people are going to bring up all of these things, logical, illogical. They're going to do whatever it takes so that the darkness does not need to come into the light. But the light is more powerful. Your job is not to force the light in. The light conquers darkness. Make the light known and leave it to God. But let's look at Christ's response now. Verse, uh, second part of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. So what's Jesus' initial response? They just brought this airtight case. They have everything covered. All exits are barred. Jesus has fallen into their ambush, and they say, All right, Jesus, what do you say? Wait, maybe he didn't hear us. It says that they continued to ask him, hey, hey, Jesus, you know what? I don't think you heard us. Um, let, let's do this again. Jesus, let me tell you. Okay, she was caught in adultery. The law of Moses. What do you say? Silence. Jesus doesn't say anything. Jesus, didn't you hear us? What does Christ's response demonstrate? See, here, here's one of the things, the, the question. I said earlier that often we spend most of the time on the questions. The question that I, it, it's amazing to me how much time people spend on this question. What did Jesus write in the sand? I listened to a couple messages this week, and it's amazing how much of the message, well, it could have been this and all that. Guys, we don't know. <laughs> There's no clues. We don't know what Jesus wrote. That's the wrong question. It's not what did Jesus write. Why did he write? Think about what they're doing. They're saying, Jesus, we've got you now. You're trapped. You are now going to play by our rules. We've got you. In that moment where Jesus goes and just writes in his sand, he's unperturbed. He's not going to let them do. The scribes expect Jesus to sweat and scramble. Instead, he starts to scribble. Right? 
They want him to sweat and scramble. What am I going to do? They've got me now. And he just starts scribbling. Starts scribbling in the sand. Here, here's the principle. principle. Man's plans never upset the plans of God. These Pharisees think they've got Jesus. You are not going to upset God's plans. He already knows. That's a theme in John. My time has not yet come. They were seeking to arrest him, but they couldn't because his time was not yet here. Over and over again, man is trying to force their plan into God's plan and, and mold God's plans into our thing. This is what you have to do, Jesus. And none of the times it does it work. Even the time where they think that it works, where they finally actually crucify him, that was part of his plan. You can't. Man's plans never upset the plans of God. But now let's look at his verbal response. They keep on pushing, and so he says, let, he stood and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now this verse is, one, is the, the main verse where people use this all types of ways. Because a lot of people look at this verse and says, yes, Oh, oh, Christian, whoa, wait a second. You're going to talk about my sin? Are you throwing a rock? Are you perfect? Is that what you're saying to me? Or, okay, if you're without sin, throw the first rock. Yes, we got them. Can shut up any Christian with that. What is Jesus saying? Can sinners judge sinners? See, it seems reasonable for us to look and say that Jesus is doing this blanket statement and saying, if you're a sinner, you have no right to throw any rocks. And truthfully, please don't throw rocks. But what is Jesus really doing here? Jesus is challenging the Pharisees because they have a misunderstanding of the law. How do the Pharisees see the law? For them, the law is their salvation. But how does that salvation come? Through themselves. The law is their foundation of self-righteousness. Now, I love that term because it's, oh, it, it explains things so well. Self-righteous. I am righteous in and of myself. That's how they use the law. Now, here's the problem. Do they know that they're not always 100% perfect? Yeah. People know that they're not always 100% perfect. So, if the law is what makes you self-righteous, but you don't always keep the law, what is your other solution to still feel self-righteous? Got to find someone else. Look at this woman, Jesus. Look at this other person. Look at their sin. How many, we see the Pharisees, God, thank you that I am not like this other sinner. Friends, we do the same thing, though. That we think that, oh, well, I'm, I'm a Christian because of my stance on abortion. That's what makes me righteous. I'm righteous because how I view homosexuality. I'm righteous because I've always attended church. I'm at least 50 out of 52. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm righteous because of all of these other things. But that's not what it is. Jesus is showing them. Let him who is without sin, they think that this is going to be the part. No, you throw the first stone. Look, you, you've misunderstood the law. Romans 3.19 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Jumping down to verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's the principle. The law reveals our unrighteousness, not our self-righteousness. If they're thinking that they're going to use this law, condemn this woman, and feel better about themselves, they misunderstand. They're not using the law right. That's what they want. They want to push this woman down. And Jesus says, you're going to use this law? You're going to use this thing to push her down and put you up? Whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. He totally flips the test because now if they throw the stone in front of the crowd, now they're the ones who are guilty before Rome for starting the murder, and then they're also guilty before the Jews because they've just claimed to be without sin. Jesus flips it around, but he's showing them that they're misunderstanding of the law. But go again, back to our question. Can sinners judge? Because we look at this, and this verse will be used with you of saying, you, you have no right to say anything. You have no right to point out the sin in my life. We can point to the sin of others. We can use authority. But we must do it in the right way. God gives us authority. If we think that this verse says, oh, nope, across the board, all sinners can never do this, you can't do that, that doesn't go with the rest of Scripture. We've gone through different books of the Bible. We've talked about church discipline. How does that work? I can tell you right now, I could never do church discipline. I'm not sinless. How do we do this? So here's the first thing. Christians, we are given limited authority in specific areas. God instituted the family. He gave authority to parents to show the sin of their children. God instituted government to protect the people, to deal with sin. God instituted the church. In the church, we have church discipline. But what is the point of all of those? Is it to feel better? Like, do I take my kids when they sin and I'm like, oh, you're so terrible. I, I don't do that. I can't believe you did that. You're awful. Now I sit down and I say, Jack, you broke God's law. And that brings condemnation. You're condemned because you broke the law. That's what the law shows us. But there's grace. The reason that we point to the sins of others is to show them Christ, is to show them grace. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I don't think that these men repented. Jesus was calling them into the light, but the darkness hates the light, and they did not want to go and do that. So they left. They knew that Jesus had switched it up on them. But again, don't let this verse mean that you cannot, in your gospel witness, show sins and the result of those sins. So not only do we have, or do we have the right in the places of authority that God gives us, we also have the right because of the mission God gave us. God sent us. As the Father sent the Son, so I send you. He talks about the Holy Spirit who will convict the world of their sin. 
It is part of our role to show you have a problem, not to feel better about myself. See, we're going to look at, in this story, the person we should identify with in this story is the woman. That's, that's who we are, where the worst of us is exposed to God and he reveals the best of himself. Unfortunately, we, we often act like the Pharisees and scribes and we put others down to feel better of ourselves. That's not where our salvation comes from. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here's our, our, our other big question. Did Jesus break the law by not condemning the woman? They quoted something. They gave him a verse. They say, This is the law of Moses, and then Jesus didn't do it. What's going on? Does Jesus say, Ah, it's all relative. You know, you, you do what you want to do. No. How then is Jesus able to not condemn the woman? Because even by his own admonition, the one without sin throw the first stone. Who's that? Jesus. But then he doesn't. The reason that the woman's condemnation is removed is because her guilt has already been dealt with. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. How can Jesus pardon this woman caught in the sin of adultery? People know about it. Because where Jesus is going is to the cross to pay for that price. This is the question for all of us. How can Jesus pardon any of us without breaking his own law? Because the law has already been fulfilled. He paid the price. Grace, here's the principle, grace is given because wrath was absorbed. Christ absorbed the wrath, wrath so he can give grace. But this is what I love. Again, our story, if we're going to think of our story like anyone's story in this, I hope it's like the woman's. Here's the thing that, that terrifies us. If I can think of a scenario that would be like top 10 worst nightmares of my life, take the worst thing about me, the thing that causes me most shame, have me dragged out in front of a crowd of people, let that sin be exposed to the only sinless person in all of history. That's a nightmare. But when the worst of her was exposed, Jesus revealed the best of himself. That's what Jesus does for each of us. Christ reveals the best of himself even after our worst is exposed. So come to Jesus. Come into the light. Let it be exposed so that he can deal with it because he paid the price. That's why Jesus can do this. So that's the, the so what. This is what we do. We avoid sin, not out of fear of condemnation, but out of gratitude for grace. Think about it. The whole structure of the law, the way the Pharisees saw it is, look, here's the whip. We've got the law and condemnation. You do that or you're going to hell. And that's what motivates us to stay in the line of, if I mess up, I'm going to hell. You are already going to hell. And Jesus, look at the, the progression. What I would expect is, hey, his last words, Go, and from now on, sin no more, then will I not condemn, condemn you. 
Isn't that a much better human understanding? Don't sin, then I will remove condemnation. But Jesus flips it. I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Well, what's our motivation to not sin anymore if there's no condemnation? What's, what's the motivation? It's grace. We avoid sin not out of fear of condemnation, but out of gratitude for grace. The last principle, though, is, is this, where this verse is, these verses are misunderstood of what do we do? What is our role? The reason we bear witness to the darkness of sin and its cost is to highlight Christ and his grace. Don't use this verse as something that stops you from doing your mission. Last week we talked about royal grace received requires real grace given. We've received this grace. We need to give this grace, but in giving this grace, we need to point out the problem. Not in self-righteousness, but out of grace and love. Christ graciously offers freedom from condemnation because he fulfilled the law's demands. Invite the worship team forward. Um, this next song that we're going to sing, uh, we sang it last Christmas season. Um, it's kind of a play on the opposite of the name of a different song. But what we see in this song is that it really is an invitation to all of us who none of us are any better than the woman. The point is, again, if you're looking at this woman like the Pharisees with self-righteousness, you miss the whole message. But we are called to even expose our worst to Christ because he will reveal his best. Won't you stand and sing with us this song?